Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I am hitting the record button for two reasons, but I'm going to merge them together as one. I have been telling you I wanted to do a, a reflection on uh, critical race theory and it's not a reflection, it's not a topic that really relates to this project. It relates to my primary podcast and my primary work. But um, because I identify as a critical race feminist and I think um, in many ways critical race theory is just important for me to share with you all my position on it just because it's been in the news, um, I've been wanting to tease it here. Like I'm not going to flush it out. I'm not going to exhaust it, but I want to tease it. And I don't often talk about things that are in the news, but, um, this, this, mm, I want to call it a movement, this movement against critical race theory in schools. It has caught my attention. And, uh, and I think because it impacts my work, the work that I, one of the, it, it impacts both my business and my job. So it is part of my, um, it is something that is coming up for me in terms of, of me processing my inner and my outer world. It's just a movement that I'm confronting and it's a theory that influences one of my identities as a critical race feminist. So I thought I would come and try to tackle it, Mm-mm, not tackle it. I thought I would come and try to tickle it. <laughs> no, I'm going to tickle it. I'm going to poke it a little bit here. I think the reason why I've delayed it, because it really is a topic that does not need to be tickled or poked. It really needs attention. I need to do some research on it. I really do. And it's a topic that is going to be covered, as I've already said, in podcast number one. Because I started a series, and uh, that particular series is done. I need to close it, and I'm going to close it with critical race theory. So I know that I have some research to do. I have some research to do. I have some writing and organizing to do, and I haven't done it yet. So to try to bring this conversation to you all, and I haven't done the research, and I haven't done the writing, which is how I organize my thinking, feels a little, I'm a little bit apprehensive, like, ah, should I do it? But I've been telling you I was going to do it, and I'm here hitting the record button. <laughs> Let's see if I actually publish this. Now, I've been saying I was going to do this for a few months now, so what? what is the catalyst of pushing it forward, finally? And that's something else that's been in the news. Um, on Friday, we got the verdict that a young man by the name of Kyle Rittenhouse, who had went, to, who had gone to a protest, had shot three people and two of those people died. And, uh, he was on trial for that. Uh, I think there were six counts against him. The judge dropped one of those counts and, um, And, um, I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted. 
And so on Friday, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict. And so that obviously has um, significance in my world, in my community. And I've been watching my own reaction to it. And like my own reaction has been intriguing to me. Um, and anyway, I don't know how much I want. I don't, mm -mm. I don't know what's going to really come out of this reflection. I'm going to be really honest with you because there's a lot here for me. So anyway, but I think just the whole understanding that verdict and maybe understanding my reaction to it, maybe that's it because my reaction to it is a little different from how other people who I respect and love are, my reaction is not like theirs. And I think it has a lot to do with critical race theory. I think. I'm not 100% sure. I got to flesh it out. So I just thought, well, as I've been watching myself, as I've been observing myself in this moment, in the aftermath of the verdict, especially in light of other people and their reaction to the verdict, I thought, well, this might be a good time to talk about critical race theory. So I say all of this as an introduction because all of it is ambitious. I mean, seriously, I haven't done the research on critical race theory. So when I start talking about it, I'm going to talk strictly from what I've, I'm able to recall. Okay. So you guys know I'm an educator and there is like an active memory bank. And then there's what's called deep storage. Much of what I have studied on critical race theory is in deep storage. Now, my ability to go back and pull it out of deep storage, I don't know. Because they're, according to learning theory, and this is something I actually subscribe to, so I deeply believe that when we're teaching and uh, trying to promote learning, there are two things we have to do. We have to get that information, that learning into the student's deep storage so that it can be retained. But the other thing we have to do is carve out pathways to go and access it. So some information and knowing can be in deep storage. But if you've not carved out pathways, it's not easy to go back and pull it. Now, there are things that you do to create the deep storage. There are things that you do to create the pathways for accessing what's been in deep storage. And I'm not 100% sure how much of my knowing of critical race theory I think a lot of it is in deep storage, but maybe not. I don't know because I haven't been tested on it, but I'm pretty sure I don't have strong pathways to go and pull it without going to get notes. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to promise you a very meaty treaty treatment of critical race theory. It won't be robust. Now, if I go and do my research and I start organizing like then once I do the research, I know that it'll help me access what's in my storage. But I'm not doing any of that. Remember, okay? All right, so just want to give you the heads up on that, that the whole topic of critical race theory is pretty ambitious. And um, it's ambitious in terms of me not doing my homework <laughs> before hitting the record button. But you all know that this is a place, this is just a journal for me where I'm reflecting so I don't have to do homework. All right. All right. So that's one thing. 
The other thing that I think is ambitious is that I don't usually cover events in this particular project, basically, basically because I'm not researching. I'm not writing. I'm not scripting. Right. And, um, and in order to talk about an event, um, to me, there are only two ways to talk about an event. Either you're going to go do some research about that event, or you're going to talk about your emotions, your feelings as relating to that event. Well, I don't want to talk about my feelings as related to the two events. And I also don't want to go do the research. <laughs> Not in this project, I don't. So that's what's going to make talking about that verdict for Kyle Rittenhouse to be pretty ambitious because I'm not interested. I'm not able to do the research for this project. I don't want to. And, um, I'm not sure I want to talk about my feelings cause I don't really yet know my feelings about it. And I wanted to say this one thing, uh, one quote that I remember learning in my twenties, early twenties is a quote that I really love. I don't spend a lot of time in it. And um, so I might butcher it because I haven't entertained the quote in a while, but it's, it says, small minds talk about people, average minds talk about events, great minds talk about ideas. Now, <laughs> I fell in love with this quote before I realized I was an ideas person as an NI Dom, right? So, you know, I'm not like, I don't think I selected this quote because I'm biased, like, oh, that's just a great way to lift me up as an NI Dom, right? I just have always known that I don't fall into conversations that are people-driven or events-driven. Now, that's it's a little bit of a, I'm going to get to my disclaimers and then I'm going to go into the reflection. What I wanted to set, I just really wanted to take care in setting this reflection up. But it's a little bit of, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a contradiction or a complication because I was a social studies teacher. As a type eight, I wanted to get into law. I wanted to get into politics. So there is a part of my training that makes me event sensitive. Right. Particularly as it relates to politics. So those are, that's all events. That's all event driven. But it's, but, but in the political world, those events are based on ideas or ideals. And I think that's what gets my interest in terms of the events. But nonetheless, this whole verdict in terms of Kyle Rittenhouse, it's really, my interest is in the idea part of it. The ideas that it up, that it represent and the ideals that it represent. So I have an interest in it. But in terms of it being a flat event, I haven't been. I haven't been. I just, but it's been important to the people who are around me. And so therefore it has come up. And I have been very curious about me not having a particular emotional reaction to it. So I've been like really like watching myself, watching my behaviors, be doing a lot of metacognitive work, like thinking about my thinking, being curious about what it is I'm thinking when I'm not thinking, when I'm feeling what I'm not feeling. And so all of that. So I'm going to push all of that together, critical race theory and Kyle Rittenhouse. That's the setup to this reflection. You guys wish me well. It is a Monday morning 
and because uh, this is a reflection I wanted to come back and, and uh, do with you yesterday. But I did the reflection on a case for identity. That was another topic that I had been promising you all. And I was like, okay, we're going to get this done. I'm going to come and do this one on critical race theory. But emotionally, I just, I, I mean, I was just doing some other things. I was exhausted. So I'm like, so it's Monday morning. I have to do this before I get ready to go into the BB&B, which is my way of calling it the job. <laughs> so anyway. You guys, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theories. The two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs, in which there are 16 types in that system. I'm an INTJ. I identify as an INTJ. That's the identity. That's the type that makes the most sense for me. Um, the other system that I use is the Enneagram. And then there are nine types in that system. And I connect most to the eight although I do have a healthy relationship with five um, I have a healthy relationship with five and then there are times when um, I can look one-ish and that's I think has a lot to do with some uh, family stuff and some family stuff and some I think some racial politics but anyway but I'm an eight um and I believe I, uh, I have a, I have the five in my wing and I think I have the three in terms of tri-type. I don't, I don't do a lot with the tri-type, but I think I'm an eight, five, three. If, if, if the tri-type is a thing, nonetheless, pushing those two systems together, I do identify as an INTJ eight. It's the way I understand myself and it's the way that I'd like other people to understand me in addition to seeing me as an African American woman knowing that I'm from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I do also identify as a critical race feminist. I've already said that. And that's just helpful for me, um, to helpful for me to get people to understand that I have a sensitivity around the location of power as relating to social constructs like race, gender, sexuality, able-bodiedness, just all of these little social units or systems that we've created in the matrix and the matrix is what I call the social world. I've done enough episodes on my treatment of the matrix. So if you're curious about that, definitely go and check it out. You guys, this project is unedited is unscripted. I've already said that in contrast to um, podcast number one. And it is a podcast, it is a project where I'm giving myself permission to be non-linear. I'm typically linear when I'm interacting in the world, but in this project, I have, I'm playing in what I'm calling my dominant function, introverted intuition, although technically you cannot separate them. I use a lot of jargon in this podcast, um, particularly around cognitive functions. Uh, so you'll hear me saying N-I- T-E-F-I-S-E. There are eight of them, but I'll use those four. And you'll hear me talking about instincts from the Enneagram, social, self-preservation, and the sexual instinct. If you're not familiar with all of that jargon, I would encourage you to hit pause to go do some research so that you'll be able to follow. Um, all right. All right, you guys. If you want to know more about this project, you can go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. And I got a little bit of stuff there. <laughs> but this is really a, a pastime for me. It really, really is just a personal journal. That's all it is. It's just a journal. I've been journaling since I was four. This is just one format 
and I'm doing it publicly. So yay, I guess. All right, you guys, let me um, try to take on these two ambitious topics and see how I bring them together. One second. All right, so I've been trying to figure out which way do I want to at least start the reflection. I think I'm going to start with Kyle Rittenhouse. I think... I think that's where I'm going to start. Okay. So there was a protest in uh, Wisconsin um, about a year ago. Uh, There was a person who was killed by police. Um, I think his name was Jacob Blake. And you have had to, you would have had to be under a rock. Like you would have had to be under several rocks. If you didn't know that 2020 was an eventful year, it's when the pandemic really hit us. But there was also this, a sweeping movement for Black Lives Matter. Um, And the Black Lives Matter movement really started, um, I want to say, was it 2016? Maybe 2015. There were just a number of cases in the news uh, where particularly young black men, uh, but it was happening for young black women, but in terms of issues of gender, they weren't, that's just how it always has been in terms of racial justice work. Racial justice work has never really centered black women, has always centered black men, and that's that's a problem. But go to my reflection yesterday. I kind of did a, talked a little bit about gender justice as relating to race. I just did it, hit on it a little bit. But historically, um, how we treat the racial justice movement really is about black men, just like how we treat the gender justice movement is about white women. So black women just don't really get fully embodied in either of those two movements. So I say that to just say that the Black Lives Matter movement really highlighted uh, the, um, the experiences life or death experiences um, of black men, although this is something that impacts black women as well. And so, but then there was, um, George Floyd was uh, murdered, um, like live and broadcast around the world. And it was just that experience that changed the whole timber of our understanding of Black Lives Matter. And um, I have some complications with that. I just have some complications with it, not in terms of the global impact, but in terms of how that movement, people think that that movement was necessary for white Americans or other Americans throughout the globe, but it really, in my opinion, was necessary for black Americans because of our complicated relationship to liberation. Some of us just want to believe that we've arrived. So I think the Black Lives Matter movement, for, in my opinion, was most impactful for other African Americans. I think it was necessary. Okay, that's not what this reflection is about. <laughs> so, um, so George Floyd, was his death was caught on camera and broadcast it out and and uh when that verdict came back from when that officer was in his trial i did a reflection on that and i think 
I think I titled that episode The Privilege of an Emotionalist INTJ because I was listening to uh, some content by these four or five INTJs that were being interviewed and they were just talking about how they don't have emotional reactions. And I'm like listening to that and at the same time having an emotional reaction to the verdict for this officer that that I was charged with killing George Floyd. And I'm like, well, what does that say about me? Cause I'm having an emotional reaction. And um, so I did a, re- I did a, episode, I did a reflection on that. So go check that out if you're interested in hearing that. So, so anyway, so this young man, Jacob, Jacob Blake, I, I'm sorry. I don't remember. I don't, I'm not recalling his name. I don't, I don't know. I think his name is Jacob though. Um, there was a pro, he died. He was, uh, he was unjustly, he was murdered. I haven't, again, I haven't studied this, but I do know that there was a protest in reaction to the treatment of this, this death. You know what? Hold on. Let me, cause I, I'm, I feel really awkward, uncomfortable not having that together. Let me go look that up one second. Okay, my correction. He's not that. He's not that. I, I didn't. I didn't think he was murdered. He was shot in the back by officers um, trying to subdue him, and so uh, he was shot. I believe paralyzed. So I didn't do an extensive research, but I wanted to get that right. So there was a protest about that that treatment, and in this protest, um, a young man by the name of Kyle Rittenhouse decided to come and provide support for the protection of property and uh and he brought um some t- I'm not a gun person so I believe some kind of gun rifle I don't know <laughs> some of you are probably like you really shouldn't even try to tackle this you don't know what the hell you're talking about <laughs> okay so um and <laughs> this is horrible okay so anyway those details that to me they don't matter too much and so, um, in the act of, uh, making a commitment to go and protect property, he shoots three people, two of those people die. <sighs> so the judge, uh, there were six counts against him. The judge dropped one and the judge did a number of things that to me would indicate a, a a bias, if not a slanting of, uh, of how he was going to rule in a particular, I mean, how he was going to uh, facilitate the whole trial and the rules that they give the jury when they go and deliberate a, a verdict. So to me, there were indicators of what the verdict was going to be. And anyway, just based on how the judge was reacting and, and making decisions and I do accept that that's the judge's prerogative to do that. I really do. I think it's problematic when we don't have enough diversity amongst our judges. Um, to be able to let, um, apply the law in ways that are, uh, supportive of all demographics. So, um, like I said, the judge pretty much showed his hand in terms of 
his particular positionality with the case and determine what could be stated in the courtroom, what couldn't be stated, gave the rules to the jury about how they could interpret the events, how they interpret the law, just a lot of power that the judge has. And that's just what the judge, that's just his power. That's his position. I get that. So the jury came back and rendered a not guilty verdict. And there are a lot of people who are really bothered by that verdict because it's believed that this young man had no right to to go and travel with his gun to protect life. Like the idea that we can protect our own life, we can to go and protect our own property, but to get in your car and to travel to go and do that kind of work to protect property, I said life, but, but to protect someone's property that's not yours, it's not even in your vicinity, that seems to be a bit of a reach. I mean, that's, that's how I would look at it. it. Seems to be a bit of a reach. So that right there was problematic. He wasn't old enough to have the kind of gun that he have that he had. That was problematic. And I think those two things alone. Oh no, there's one more thing. And then his association. So some of his social media posts, some of the uh, associations that he has which would indicate that he's a person that's influenced by some type of racial agenda. So I would say those three things come together to make this all pretty complicated. This young man took it upon himself to travel to a protest to protect property with a gun that he wasn't legally allowed to have. And his, um, and his associations would indicate that he has a racial agenda. Okay. So the verdict coming back, exonerating him, um, rendering him not guilty, it was significant. You know, it really, really was significant. I wasn't really moved by it, though. Like I already said, I already had an idea how the verdict was going to turn out just by history, right? <laughs> I mean, we just look at the number, just look at how the law has, look at how the law has served people who are at the margins historically, right? So just taking history into account, it wouldn't, it, it wasn't going to, surprised me to see a verdict that would be in alignment with how verdicts have been rendered in the past. I think that was why the whole, I can't think of the cop's name, but when that verdict of guilty was rendered for the cop who killed George Floyd, that's why I had an emotional reaction. Because historically, we just don't have that kind of, um, those kind of outcomes that would, where the law would, protect the life of those of us at the margins. Um, so historically, I mean, we're just dealing, I keep saying historically because that's just the reality, case after case after case, um, where the law just doesn't uphold the people, the life of the people at the margins. So I wasn't, wasn't surprised about it. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why I was emotionally like, um, well, I don't, wasn't that I was trying to be indifferent. It wasn't trying to, it was trying to be callous, but it's, it's kind of like, do the math. One plus one equals two. I don't care how you twist it. I don't care how you feel about it. One plus one is never going to equal three. It's just not. So from a place of logic, that's kind of what I was expecting. Unfortunately, not what I've been pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I do also want to say that as a person that is a, that's committed to young people, regardless of their race or economic background, and this is going to not land well on people, but my heart does go out to that young man. And I was, I was watching him when I went back and I watched the verdict. When I went back and I watched the verdict um, being read and how they went through each of those accounts and how, 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 how it landed on him when each account when they said not guilty. Go, ch- go check out the clips on that. I mean, it was through his body. There was real fear there. Like just overwhelm. And I could, I felt him. And I thought to myself, I think to myself right now, he's a, he is a, he's a young man. And I think the reason why I, you heard me just pause when I was about to say he's a kid. He, this is, this is, this is a point I just really want to try to make. It's going to be hard for me to make it though. Historically, people at the margins, particularly young people of color, are not giving, given a childhood. Black girls, Latin, Latinas, Latina and black girls are not allowed girlhood. There's something about the, the young women when they, hit a certain age, young girls, when they hit a certain age, they're expected to take on the sexuality of a woman, the burdens of a woman. And this isn't just by society. This is even by mothers. There are certain ways that mothers raise their black daughters different than how they raise their black boys. They're not afforded childhood. They're not afforded girlhood. That's the same thing with black boys and Latino boys. If something goes wrong, the, the the law usually treats them as men, not boys. So you have to go and check out though. Just just check out. Just go and do your homework on that. So because the society and the law has not really given people of color youth, like not allowed them to be kids, when we find a white person at the at the at this age. We have a hard time. We there's a struggle. Like, well, we want to give them. We want to strip them of their childhood. We want to strip them of their youthfulness and give them man. Give him manhood, right? I don't feel that way. I feel he's a young man. He's been improperly influenced, and in this way, he's been influenced in a way that's been fatal. I don't condone how he's been influenced. I don't condone any of it. But in terms of understanding the socialization process and knowing who I was at that age and knowing who I am now, I, I, I feel like he has to be looked at through the lens of being a young man at 18. Period. Just, I don't know another way of looking at that. Do I think he was wrong? Absolutely. I think he was wrong. 
And I think you can hold both of those to be true. He was wrong, but he's still a young man. And he's still human. So I don't, I don't know if I'm going to have some people who will stop listening to me from for, for saying that, but that is how I feel about it. Um, so I just, when I noticed that, I just was like, I just thought to myself how society has failed him or have, or have they like, it's complicated. Did society fulfill, did society fail this young man or did society get from this young man exactly what it wanted? All you have to do is pay attention to what's going to happen to him now. You know, like look at the, look at the institutions and the groups and the people that are going to rally behind him. Look at how he will become a representation of some type of ideal or ideology, right? He's going to now be the poster child for a, a certain segment of society. That's just what it is. It is what it is. So anyway, so that's what happened. And um, most of the people in my world are pretty, pretty bothered, pretty hurt by it. And uh, I mean, pretty distraught. And I don't know. I don't know what's going on with me. I just don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's because I'm still dealing with the grief of my dad. I'm dealing with my own struggles. <laughs> um, but I just think from a logical point of view, number one, history. History already told us what was going to happen with that verdict. Number one, the, the judge already showed us what was going to happen by the things the judge was saying, about the decisions he was making. And then history tells us what was going to happen. So I am just not having an emotional reaction to it. I, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm going to have it later because sometimes that, a lot of times that happens with me being tertiary FI, my emotional reactions are delayed. Or my emotional reaction is in a different direction. It re- and I think that's where it, I think, I think if I, I think I do have emotions about it, but it's not in the shock of that verdict. It's not, I'm not shocked by it. Am I angry by it? Well, I'm angry about how society treats people at the margins. Do you get what I'm saying? There's no new anger. It's not new. It's already there. (laughs) This is what drives the work that I do, which is another thing about it. It's like, I have to be in action about it. Yes, there's an emotion. What are we going to do about it? And this is just really where I'm at. So I'm going to transition now. I'm going to transition and I want to talk a little bit about critical race theory. Because critical race theory gives us a framework for taking action. I don't have a problem with people having emotions. I don't have a problem with that at all. And I, you know, some people are like, at some point you gotta take those emotions and move them into action. Oh yeah, that's a given, but I don't even think that's really what the problem is. I think the problem is people don't know what action to take. This is why protesting is so vital when you're at the margins. Because when you're at the social margins, you are not linked to the structures of power. Because when you're linked to structures of power, then you can put a plan in place and then you have the power to implement it. 
this is what this is the ex, this is the essence of being powerless. And the Constitution allows us. If we can't do anything else, we can publicly talk about what we're experiencing and what we're feeling, and we can protest. This is what the Constitution allows us to do. If we believe the Constitution is also for people at the margins. Now, what is that going to mean in the future? What kind of presence has this happened? Now, when we want to protest, we want to protest. All it requires is somebody who says, nope, I'm going to now go and protect property. And now I'm going to, I have the right to shoot. And this is the problem. This is where it gets a little complicated. His presence, I don't believe was neutral. There's, there's no way you're going to tell me that he was just showing up with a gun with this racialized context, with a racial agenda context, and that there was no no antagonism happening with the protesters. I just, I'm not going to believe that. So some protesters wanted to, uh, apparently, I don't know this to be true or not, but this is how the story goes, that they wanted to take that gun from him. They wanted to subdue him. He felt in fear of his life he had a right to protect his life at that time based on the constitution he shot and he killed that's a complicated story because it points it's like the chicken or egg when when does culpability start like who's responsible at what point right did those protesters have a right to um subdue a young man that was being antagonistic well did he have a right to protect his life well, did he have a right to take the gun and travel to a particular place? Well, it's not an easy, it's not an easy conversation. Okay, but I'm off of that. So I think this is what I, this is where I'm at in terms of movement work. Like, it, it's okay, it's okay to have the emotions, but it is, we do, we have to move into action. And I love that young people have pushed this the whole protesting from 2020, that was done by young people. That's where social change happens at the hands of young people. Because by the time you get to be my age, you're kind of like, well, <laughs> it kind of is what it is. I mean, not, I'm not callous like that, but. So I want to, I'm going to talk a little bit more about critical race theory. I'm going to close, but I want to share something about the law that would help. Let me, let me say this one thing. So the, oh, the whole idea of critical race theory really giving us a framework to help us to better take action is really something I believe in. Okay. But here's what's happening at the same time. <laughs> I just, it, this is, now this is where I get emotional. This is really where I get emotional. We, this, there's a movement to make sure that teachers aren't teaching critical race theory. Now, critical race theory is a theory that is really used at the at the at the graduate level. It's not it's not a theory typically that's taught in a K twelve setting, but it is a theory that is starting to surface in terms of teaching teachers. So teachers aren't necessarily going into the schools talking about critical race theory, but that theory now is influencing how they are going to select curriculum, how they select the curriculum how they are going to engage with students and how they define what is instruction. Now, 
that's what teacher training is all about. We're, we're bombarded with different theories. Is it okay for us to have a theory that would explain how people at the margins, particularly people who are racialized at the margins, how they have been historically treated in this country? Is that a problem? Because that's what critical race theory requires. Okay, let me say this. So before critical race theory existed, which is just a theory, like I said, that helps us to look at experiences that uh, people who are racialized are having by various, by, uh, by the law. Like how does the law treat people at the margins? So prior to this theory, we have this philosophy of what's called self-determinism. Like what, where you are in life, what you have is based on your own effort. Then there was a movement that believed that people were where they in, in life, not necessarily because of their effort, but because of them, what they held essentially. Essentially, are you of, essentially, are you, if you think about, uh, um, Darwinism, what is it called? Um, survival of, of the fittest. Only the fit will survive. Well, there are some groups that are inherently stronger than other groups. There are some groups that are inherently weaker than other groups. Well, then that's why African-Americans are doing poorly because they're just inherently weaker. It's not that they're not trying hard. They're just inherently weaker. Okay. So that was another movement. But if you, and then you have another movement that takes a look at like the metrics of what we're able to accomplish, right? But through all of that, I mean, no matter where you stand, this is, and I'm okay with it. I always, when people start talking about blacks, I always want to get to the heart of it. What do you fundamentally believe? Do you believe that blacks are inherently inferior? Do you believe that blacks are inherently inferior? Do you believe that blacks are inherently more criminal? Like this, this argument, well, statistically, blacks create more crime. They can, they create, they, they, they create more crime. They engage in more crime. Okay, well, let's take a look at that. If that's true, statistically, I mean, there's so many ways you can unpack that, but let's just, let's just look at it on, on its face. When I hear somebody say that, then all I ask is, what do you fundamentally think about black people? That we're inherently inferior or that we're inherently criminals? Because if you believe that we're inherently inferior and inherently criminals, there there's nothing else that we can talk about. There's nothing else that I can say that is going to make you change your mind on that. So I have to, then we just, I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in having a conversation. Like, I'm not interested in convincing you to believe that I'm more than a criminal. That I, that I'm not inherently inferior. If you feel that way about black people, then that's just how you feel. And I'm going to move on. I'm going to put my efforts somewhere else. Okay. But most people wouldn't say that. Most people wouldn't say that blacks are inherently inferior. There are, there are, there's a substantial group of people who do believe that blacks are inferior and blacks are criminals. That, that is true. But most people don't believe that. Yet they will say blacks commit the most crime. So if you don't believe blacks are inferior, and if you don't believe that they're inherently criminal, 
how do you then understand that they commit more crime? Okay, they have different hardship. Okay, that's one theory. But another theory is to determine what is considered, to take a look at what is considered a crime. Crime is a social construct. It is constructed by our society. There are things that are considered criminal today that weren't, that weren't considered criminal 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. You guys get what I'm saying? Society determines what is criminal behavior. How then are laws constructed to then determine what is a crime? If we want to believe that that's neutral, if you want to believe that there's neutrality in terms of how laws are constructed to determine crime, then we have to go back to this. Then, then, then we would have to say, then if laws are neutral to determine what's a crime, why are blacks committing? Why does it look like statistically we create more crime? Okay. So that's in how laws are created. The other thing is in the stats. It's in the data. What data is collected? Do you think that all data is collected? Do you think all data is reported? So this notion that I'm going to go and look at the data because the data tells us that blacks are committing more crime. No one is going to poke at the data collection instrument. The instrument that is used to collect the data, the people that are used to collect the data, how the data is stored, how it's reported. No one is going to ask that question. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to do some reading, you guys. I got some stuff. I got 15. I want to get this done. I got to get to work. So I can keep a job so I don't have to be a criminal. <laughs> Hashtag sarcasm, just so if those of you who are listening, that needed to be said. <laughs> okay. I want to read a couple of things. I'm reading from a book called Human Behavior in the Social Environment. It's another book that I like, but it's not like my, not like the book I read from yesterday. The book I read from yesterday was like, ooh, it's a big deal for me. I love that book. But this is a good one. I, I reference this one. I go to this book a lot. All right. So I'm going to do some reading. I want to talk about the, the I want to read about what's called the theory of law. This idea, what is the law? The law is something that is connected to the matrix. It's connected to the social world. The law is not absolute. It is not fixed. And it is not void of context. The law is a utility. You have to look at the law in that way. All right. Hold on. All right, I'm going to start reading. Reality manifests itself through behavior. As such, all realities behave or manifest themselves differently when forces impinge upon them, such as molecules, organisms, planets, and personalities. Ha ha ha. That ha ha part is not in the text. <laughs> okay, I'm going to keep reading. The same may be said for social reality. That's why I call it the matrix, you guys. It's a social, it's a, it is a perceived social reality. Okay, let me go back and read that again. The same may be said for social realities such as families, organizations, cities, revolutions, conversations, friendships, and government. Social reality or social life varies according to stratification, morphology, culture, 
organizations and social control. All right. Guys, did you hear me emphasize social control? I'm going to keep reading. Stratification involves a vertical layering of social life with the most privileges of life resting with individuals at the top and few or no privileges resting with persons at the bottom. All right. So there's a lot there that relates to this idea of critical race theory and what kind of action do we take when we are grossly not represented by the law, when we're grossly not protected by the law, when the law instead harms us and it doesn't protect us, okay? And one of the things is that all um, this idea of social control and stratification and organizations all come together to create this idea of a reality, but it's all subjective and it's all relative. There, it is not fixed, okay? And then, of course, the stratification, I talk about that all the time. I call it a hierarchy. Um, and, it, and, it, and there is, in our social order, there are people who at the top who have more privileges and people who are at the bottom who have least, who don't have those privileges or the least amount of privileges. I'm going to keep reading, okay? Social controls, social control involves the normative facets of social life and determines what constitutes deviant behavior. I'm going to read that again. Social control involves the normative facets of social life and determines what constitutes deviant behavior. Social control also determines whether and whether such deviant behavior will be disapproved, prohibited, compensated, or punished, right? So, so not only does the social control determine what is deviant behavior, it also then social control also determines what deviant behavior will be punished and what deviant behavior will be rewarded. Come on now. Do you guys see how this all sits together? Come on now. All right. Um, Okay, let's talk about the theory of law. Um, okay, so there are two. I, this is this is something I had to read. I, I did read this yesterday because I wanted to do this reflection with you guys yesterday, but it was so dense. It took me about three readings to get it, and I think I'm going to try. Basically, this idea called the theory of law says law is a unit. I'm not reading anymore, you guys. Law is a unit. Okay. But it is a unit that's applied to people or groups based on what's called respectability. So how respectable a person is based on the groups that they are associated with, based on the categories that have been assigned to them, they have more or less law in their favor. They have more units of law in their favor. Those people who don't have respectability, that don't have categories that are associated with privilege, they have fewer units of law to work in their favor, okay? All right. So I think it goes with, I'll say, the more respectable you are based on the categories that you belong to, the more units of law that you have at your disposal. The, 
the less respectable you are based on the groups that you belong to, the fewer units of law you have to work at your disposal. This is why this was called respectability politics. And oftentimes in the past, and still today, black people will try to apply respectability politics against another black person because it's this belief that if we are perceived to be more respectable, then we'll have access to more units or units of law or units of education, units of justice, right? So there are some blacks that try to push this re a respectability agenda so that we can have greater access to units of law, okay? All right. That's when I have a lot of, this is when I argue with other black people significantly. Uh, now my family, my sister makes my sister nervous because this is where I, this is where I take action the most with other African Americans who believe that our limited access to law units is because we are not respectable enough. So the question becomes, where does respectability begin? Does it begin in our behavior or does it begin at the social control level when someone is determining which group has access to more privileges than other? Okay. All right. I'm going to sit that there because I just have been paraphrasing this text. I, I want to read something from the text just so you'll know where I, that I am paraphrasing it when I talk about units of law and respectability. According to Black, and this is the person who's come up with this theory, I don't believe it's called... Um, Hold on a second. Sorry, y'all. I'm freestyling it. I'm freestyling it. I think it's called Black's Theory of, Theory of Law. But I don't see it. Hold on. Yeah, his name is Donald Black. So it's Donald Black's Theory of Law. So let me read something. According to Black, law varies inversely with other social control. So as a family member or neighborhood loses social control, there is more law. Also, law varies directly with respectability. That is to say, the more respectable a person is, the greater the quantity of law. Black states that the law is greater in a direction towards less respectability than towards more respectability. And I'm telling you, I had to keep reading this over and over again. I had about three pages where I was last yesterday. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so... Uh, so there are two things that impacts the unit of law, the respectability, and I've already talked about that, um, but the amount of control that's assigned to a particular group. I think it's all connected around respectability and, and, and uh, yeah, about around respect. Okay, so I want to come back to, um, so here you had a young man who was able to take a gun, illegally have a gun travel to another place and people want to talk about he go he went to another town but the way that those cities are uh connected he really probably only traveled about 20 minutes i don't believe definitely don't believe it's over an hour so i don't want to focus on the fact that he went to a different city although i do understand what people highlight it but i do want to say that he did travel he did can he did travel with an, an illegally possessed gun for the notion of protecting property all while having an attachment or a connection or association with some type of race-based agenda, okay? Um, and even so, I don't think anybody would question that as a deviant behavior that he shouldn't have done it, but the, the way the law ruled in his favor really upholds this idea that the unit of law is assigned. He had more units of law because 
obviously because he's a male and he's white. That's so obvious. But I think there's another unit. I think he's also a privileged in terms of units of law because of there's a movement in our country right now. Not right now, but there's always been a movement which there's historically can, you can go back through history and, um, and mm, show a correlation between the freeing of the emancipation of African-Americans from slavery, the establishment of crime, and the um, penal system, and the proliferation of guns. Like all three of those are correlated. Is it a coincidence? Because correlation doesn't mean causation, but there are all, all of those things erupted around the same time. Okay. And there's this notion of stripping this idea of if we don't have the power to enact laws or process legislation or in, in, in the area that this young, this all of this took place, you don't even have black ownership, right? So it's also a, a movement to strip the power out of protesting, right? So there were a number of reasons why this young man had more units of law in his favor. And as I bring closure, I don't know if any of this was of value. I'm going to probably go back and listen to this and go, what the hell? <laughs> Just what the hell? Um, I think that critical race theory helps us better understand how racial injustice happens at the institutional level. It's not just something that happens between two people. It's not something that's about the N-word. Oh, you used the N-word, you're a racist. I can't stand when people do that. It is, racism does have an interpersonal aspect to it, but it's where it hurts us is structurally through organizations, through the law, um, through economics, how we are able to get access to um, loans, how we're able to invest, how we're able to uh, develop wealth or not through our education system, right? And through the Constitution. And so we, the critical race theory just gives us the lens to take a look at what happens at the structural level. That's all it is. Why people would be against that, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why we're able to, we're not able to take a look at patterns and trends as it relates to race and structure. Unless, unless it's going to reveal a certain pathology amongst a particular group of people. And that I understand. No one wants to be looked at as the, uh, as the, uh, in a pathological way. No one wants to be looked at as the problem. No one. Black people don't want to look, be looked at as a problem. And white people don't want to be looked at as a problem. Imagine that. We're all asking for the same thing. We're all asking to be viewed in a way that doesn't make us inherently inferior, inherently bad, inherently pathological. Without critical race theory, there is no way that we're really going to be able to protect the inherent nature of what it means to be black or brown or even poor for that matter. So critical race theory is just a theory that helps us to do that.
So when we have groups of people that are fighting to keep that critical race theory out of the schools, what they're actually saying is we don't want to, we do not want to have a a cognitive shift. We don't want to have a paradigm shift in terms of who's considered to be inherently good versus who's considered to be inherently bad. And critical race theory is going to, 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 it's going to, it's going to needle that. It's going to poke that. Now, I don't really want to, I don't want to shift it in terms of saying this group was good and now this group is bad. This group was bad and now this group is good because ultimately we're all good and bad. I just want to take the race piece out of it. Let people really stand on their merit of being good and bad. But having laws and structures that protect the goodness of some and having laws and structures that reinforce the bad in others is just not something I can support. So thank you for letting me poke this for myself now I know what direction I'm going to take this when I when I when I go into podcast number one. Now I know how I wanted to. Tr- I'm going to treat it. This was like the pre-treatment of that podcast. This was me brainstorming it through. So, <laughs> oh my goodness gracious, you guys! If this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about critical race theory, units of law. What does it mean to be inherently good or inherently bad? If any of those conversations. If any of this conversation related to something or related to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. I would appreciate it. Be careful, though, okay? There are a lot of angry people on both sides of this. Um, I would appreciate... I just don't want this to... Uh, you can share it however you want to share it. But if those people come to this podcast, they're going to learn, I'm not here to attend to the sensibilities of other people, emotionally or not. I don't care if you're black or white, rich or poor, gay or straight. That is not my commitment. My commitment is to unpack my inner and my outer worlds, right? <laughs> and I'm doing it through a theoretical contract uh, context. I happen to be a black woman. I happen to love other people who are black. And so uh, being racially at a the bottom of a, a hierarchy or the stratific, a social stratification does make, does have an impact on how I unpack my inner and my outer worlds. It really does. And I think being at the top of the racial stratification or hierarchy also impacts how we show up in the type community. Although people who have privilege don't want to acknowledge their privilege. And this is something I talk about with other African-Americans who have what's called Christian privilege, right? Patriarchal privilege. There are different, there's not, there's more privilege than just white privilege. We talk about white privilege, but that's not the only privilege that exists. Okay. And so I do more arguing, if you will, more debating with other uh, African-Americans who are more privileged being straight, being Christian and being, Quasi middle class, and I say quasi because black middle class is different from white middle class, but you can't tell them folks that. <laughs> so anyway, so I do have a bias. So that is where I spend most of my time. Um, 
when I talk about racial justice work. It's really, really with other African-Americans. So when you share this reflection out, just make sure you let somebody know I'm not here, what I'm here in this podcast for, but I ultimately, um, I am ultimately here for the, the grand work of doing justice work. It's just not what this podcast is for. So just be sensitive with that. But I can't control what you do. <laughs> so do you. All right, you guys. Um, if my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, please, I would love to hear it. Even if I don't agree with it, I still want to hear it because it's, I love thinking. And one thing I think you guys know by listening to my other episodes. I am pretty good at stripping out the emotion of something and really delving into the logic of it. I enjoy that. It's stimulating for me. So if you had some thoughts and, uh, and you're worried about me being sensitive to it, don't, don't worry. I can handle it. As long as you're not saying like cursing me out or using racial slurs or gender slurs. But if <laughs> that's different, you know what I mean? But if you had some thinking, not some emotion, but some thinking that came from me moving about, I would love to hear that. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Whoa, what is your assignment going to be? Let me put you guys on hold. I'm going to have to think about this. Hold on a second. You guys, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to give you a, a reflecting assignment. Most of this conversation around uh, critical race theory is about structures. It's about social structures and patterns. So I'm going to ask you to do some research. Go and research social control. What is social control? And how do we apply it? What are the different ways that we use to have control in our social world? All right. Once you look at that, take a look at how law is used as a form of social control. I mean, education is used as a form of social control. Medicine is even used as a form of social control. The media is used as a form of social control, right? All of those institutions. But I'm asking you to look at how law is looked at, a form of social control. You can actually look at any of them. Um, but if, And also take a look at what's called the unit of law. I don't think they called it unit of law. Unit of law. I think I named it as that. Hold on. Yeah, I think I gave it the name units of law, but what in this text they call it the quantities of law. So the you know the quantity of law is, yeah. So I just called it the unit of law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just look up at look up how law is used as a form of social control. Also look up uh, racial stratification or social stratification because we don't just stratify in our society based on race. We stratify it based on sexuality, too. We already know that, right? And we use the Bible. The Bible is still being used to support, or religious texts are used to support sexual stratification. It used to be used to support racial stratification, but now it's not. But the Bible used to be used to support racial stratification. But we're still using it to support stratification around sexuality and gender, right? So just take a look at social stratification, social control, quantities of law, or what I'm calling units of law. Um, So just do your homework on that, because I think you can look up critical race theory, and that's that's just a framework to help us to 
it helps us to ask different questions. It just helps us to ask different questions. And it helps us to ask, to not only look at what is available to us, but to look at what's not available. Like when I went back and I talked about statistics, yeah, we can look at statistics and they might be showing us one thing. I say this in education all the time. You know, we look at test scores. We often talk about how those test scores look with the test takers, the kids who take the test. But when do we look at the test makers, the people who make the test? We might talk about the instrument that's been designed to collect to to collect the data to generate the test. But when do we look at the test makers? So, so critical race theory just helps us to ask different questions. But I do agree that no one wants to be pathologized. No one wants to be pathologized. So I understand why people don't want critical race theory to be used. If it's going to be used in a way that's going to make a group of people look bad. I get it. Imagine that. No one wants to have their entire category demonized. No one wants their entire category to be pathologized. Imagine that. Yet it's happening. <laughs> so what are we going to do about it? So you guys, I'm going to come back to um, my personality reflections. I didn't talk about cognitive functions at all, but I do have some ideas about how cognitive functions play in this whole conversation around social control and social hierarchies. I really do. So I have to come back at another time, but I'm not going to make any promises because it's hard when I promise you guys things and then I, I don't get back to it. So, all right, you guys, that's it. Enjoy that homework assignment. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.